Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Post Live Election Daily, hosted by national political reporter Robert Costa, is a daily snapshot of the state of the 2020 election. Each day, Costa and other Washington Post reporters will give you the headlines, the inside track on key congressional races, and a behind-the-scenes assessment on the presidential race in top battleground states. And we'll hear from key newsmakers and top political players. In this episode, you'll hear from Representative Pramila Jayapal and Senator Todd Young. Good afternoon. It's Monday, the day before Election Day. I'm Bob Costa. Welcome to Washington Post Live, our program, Election Daily, 1 p.m. Eastern, every day. Today, we're going to hear from two party leaders on the front lines of this historic campaign. First, we're gonna hear from Senator Todd Young. Actually, he'll be later in the program. Senator Todd Young of Indiana. He's the person who's running all the Senate campaigns for the Republicans as they hold on to their their majority. We'll also welcome Representative Pramila Jayapal from Washington State. She's the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus in the House. She's one of those leaders in Washington who, regardless of who wins, will really be a voice in the Democratic Party in the years to come. And she's already campaigning across the country. And I'll also have two of my colleagues who I've been waiting to hear from for a long time. Dave Weigel, he writes the trailer newsletter. And one of our top pollsters, Emily Guskin, she'll be with us later in this program. But first, let's go to the headlines because it's the day before election day. Voters finally get to decide, not us in the media, not anybody else. It's the voters. It's you who gets to decide. Here's what I'm hearing. Let me open my notebook for a moment. Number one, the Trump campaign, Republicans, they are concerned about my home area, the Philadelphia suburbs. They see an erosion there based on my conversations with strategists in the state and at the national level because of the pandemic. Because of that erosion in the Philadelphia suburbs and Pennsylvania is so critical, you heard the chance of fire Fauci last night at the Trump rally. President Trump's turning to his base. He's running against the doctors, stoking that base in western and central Pennsylvania and other parts of the country. It's all about casting himself as the candidate of the restless American who wants to reopen the country and casting Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee, as the shutdown candidate. That That's this final day, t- the last 24, 48 hours. That's the play. And you saw the president somewhat encouraging of that fire Fauci chant. Democrats, they're... worried about stoking turnout because they feel very good. You look at all the polls, you talk to Biden people, they say across the Midwest, Biden's doing well, but they also want another path. If the voters don't come out in Milwaukee and Philly in the way they need in the cities, the traditional Democratic voters, they need to have another path to the White House. The Sun Belt, Arizona, maybe even Texas could be in play, but also the Deep South. Democrats haven't won there for a long time. A lot of Democrats paying attention to Georgia. So in the final stretch here, Democrats paying attention to Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, but also looking to the Sun Belt and South to see what happens. But let's now welcome Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She's expected to easily win another term on Tuesday in Washington state. And because of that, she's been really busy helping Vice President 
President Biden and his efforts uh, virtually. Uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, you're the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus in the House. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. It's so great to be back as always and such an important time. So why did the Biden campaign put you into the Pennsylvania part of the campaign? Was that about getting the, the progressive out in Philadelphia and other parts of the state? What are you doing and what are you hearing on the ground? Well, actually, we decided on our own to pick up Pennsylvania. You know, I'm a um, one of the members of Congress. There's not many of us that runs a year-round organizing effort on the campaign side. So we not only work on getting me reelected, but we work on critical races around the country. This year, we decided we had to, in addition to working on Washington State, of course, um, and key districts here, we had to turn our attention to Pennsylvania and adopting Pennsylvania to make sure we were turning up progressive voters, voters of color, young people for Biden and Harris. And so we've been doing an amazing effort. We've had uh, working with Pennsylvania Stands Up, a really great grassroots organization in Pennsylvania. We have been uh, training our volunteers mm -hmm. in seven hour deep canvassing training. And over 600 of them have participated in this effort. We've made over 140,000 phone calls into Pennsylvania just in the last three and a half weeks. And now, of course, we're focused on GOTV. But in the early weeks, we were really focused on persuasion, on listening, on helping to move people along the scale, on addressing some of their concerns if they were you know, either thinking of voting for Trump, turning them around, or if they weren't sure they were going to vote for Biden, really moving them along that scale. And it's been amazing effort. And um, I'm so proud of our volunteers and people who are just refusing to leave anything on the line to make sure we do everything we can to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. There's no doubt the effort's being made. But Congresswoman, what about in Pennsylvania or other key states? If there's a voter, a progressive voter who says, I wanted a Green New Deal. I wanted Medicare for all. Are you convinced that voter is going to make sure they vote on Tuesday? Well, it's always about turnout. You know, it's about turnaround and it's about turnout. As a as Becky Pringle, the head of the NEA, was just saying to me, she's from the state of Pennsylvania. I was talking to her about Pennsylvania. Um, and so, of course, we've got to make sure that our base turns out. You know, sometimes people describe, Bob, the um, swing voter as the moderate voter or the independent voter or the Republican voter that we want to turn and vote Democrat. And those folks are really important. But the other major category of swing voters is our base, people who haven't felt like it matters, that their vote counts, that their uh, either party is going to fight for them. This year, I think we have made a very compelling case um, because we have been united and really understanding what's at stake here and saying to progressives and young people who are not, you know, happy that we're not going all the way to a Medicare for all or a Green New Deal. But what I say to them over and over again is there is no progress possible with Donald Trump in the White House. And to not vote is to give away your power. It isn't just that you're not voting, it's that you're giving your vote to Donald Trump and to um, you know others who are running against Democratic candidates. And so I do feel that this year we have made tremendous progress, but we have more to do. We've got to make sure that uh, African-Americans, Latinx voters, young people are turning in their ballots. And we've had record turnout, but there is no one sitting on our laurels here. We are 
working every single minute of every single hour of every single day right up to the election and then after as well. So is the closing argument from progressives who are trying to get voters out more that President Trump is bad rather than Biden is great and trying to make you believe that? It's both. I mean, if if we already have a lot of progressives who have already voted for Biden, and part of the reason that they voted for him is because they and the progressive movement has worked with the Biden campaign, the Biden-Harris campaign, and really put forward the most progressive platform of any recent Democratic presidential campaign. And that is true on immigration. It's true on climate. It's true on health care even though it doesn't go as far as some of us would like. And so it is very much about you know, recognizing the very strong progressive platform that Biden is running on. Just look at um, college as an example. Um, Joe Biden incorporated into his platform parts of my bill with Bernie Sanders, the College for All bill, you know, assuring that um, young people in families earning up to $125,000 would have free college, free higher education. That is huge. He's committed to canceling student debt, not as much as we'd like, but significant amounts of student debt. He has committed to making sure that um, on climate, that we meet very aggressive, not as aggressive as we'd like, but very aggressive targets around 2035 and 2050 net zero emissions. And so I think when you look at all of these issues, there are a lot of our base who see that progress on racial justice, on uh, so many of the issues that they care about. If there are still people now at the very end who are uncertain about Joe Biden, then yes, our answer is anything you care about is going to be destroyed by another four years of Donald Trump in the White House. Are you convinced that if Vice President Biden wins, he's going to put progressives in, in the cabinet? Well, I have a lot of faith that he will, um, but let me just say that obviously we're going to have to fight to keep the floor that we established of both policies and also make sure that there are many strong progressives in the in the White House and in his cabinet and also all the way down through. But I'll just say, Bob, that um, you know, Joe Biden is going to come into, let's just say that Joe Biden wins from our lips to God's ears, as they say. Um, but let's just say that he comes into the White House. I do believe he is a man of tremendous principle, tremendous compassion, who understands the, the defining moment that this country is in. And I think Joe Biden understands and has talked about wanting to have an FDR-type legacy, understanding that COVID-19 put a floodlight on so many of the inequities that existed long before COVID hit, but it really showed us where we are as a country and what we have to do to bring about justice. Combine that with the, the um, reckoning that America is having with our legacy of white supremacy and anti-blackness. And I think that this is a moment where Joe Biden in and of himself um, is, you know, is, is committed to trying to deliver real structural change. All of that said, of course, we're gonna push hard to make sure that we get as bold and uh, as many bold structural reforms as we can get to really bring about opportunity in our country. Congresswoman, you just said you're going to push hard. I've also read that you've resisted the comparison of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the, House, the group of House progressives, to the conservative House Freedom Caucus. 
So if you're going to push hard, what does that actually mean? If you don't want to be kind of this this uh, Freedom Caucus type group, what do you want the Progressive Caucus to be in a Biden administration, in a Biden Washington? Yeah, the reason I always resist that comparison is because the Freedom Caucus is just about tearing things down. They don't believe that government should exist. We are the exact opposite. Progressives believe that government is the great equalizer of opportunity in the United States of America and that a strong government response on critical issues that are central to people having um, equality and justice for all is absolutely essential. And so um, we are in the position where we are constantly pushing for more. We are, I like to say that progressives are, the definition of being a progressive is just that we are the first to the best and most just idea. And then everybody else comes along later. And so you look at a $15 minimum wage. Now um, it is a mainstream of the Democratic platform. 10 years ago, when Seattle became the first major city in the country to pass a $15 minimum wage, it wasn't. And so that's why I resist the comparison. And what it means for progressives to be strong in a Biden administration and to push hard is that we unify around core ideals that are central to the Democratic Party. Because at the end of the day, in two years in the midterms and in four years, we have to show voters very quickly that there is a massive difference in their lives, in their pocketbooks, in their healthcare, in their education, in the chance to pass down a planet to their kids and grandkids. And so that is the, the task we will have. Donald Trump is not only a um, problem in and of himself, he's a symptom. He was elected because there were too many people on both sides of the aisle who felt that government was not delivering for them, that government only cared about the wealthiest and the biggest corporations. And we have to make sure that nobody ever thinks that about the Democratic Party again. What are you gonna, going to do, Congresswoman, if President Trump wins a second term? We're not focused on that, Bob. Um, you know, th those are words that we are just not thinking about at this moment. We have to do everything we can to inspire people to turn out, to make a difference in this election, because, um, you know, we've been saying everything is on the line. It's not just, I know Joe Biden always says character is on the ballot, and it is. O President Obama has said a character is on the ballot. It is, but there is more that is on the ballot. It is our democracy. This president, if he gets another four years, will absolutely destroy the foundations of democracy. We are seeing it now with what he is doing to try to make sure that votes don't count. Votes by Democrats and Republicans, by the way, when they challenge drive-in voting in Texas or you know absentee ballots that are mailed that the voter in Minnesota set, trusted was on their ballot that their vote would be counted for a certain number of days after the election. When they challenge those things, remember, they are challenging the votes of every American, not just Democrats. And so I really think that people have to understand this is a power grab and the road to fascism is filled with moments where people could have stood up and said something and they didn't. And he is being supported by Republican enablers who continue to think um, to allow him to make these kinds of outrageous statements and enact cruel policies. So we just have to make sure that doesn't happen. And that's what I'm focused on.
and I understand, I respect that position. But the reason I ask is a serious question. To your point, you just made. You think the United States could be on a road to fascism if President Trump wins again? I do, and um, you know that is why, of course, we are doing the preparation work around the elections and the challenges that it appears that he is going to be mounting. Though I do note that some Republicans are starting to speak out um, and say, we've got to make sure that every ballot is counted. We need more of them um, to do that. Uh, there was a fabulous piece that was published in USA Today by the former Republican Party chair in New Hampshire. And I thought she laid out one of the most compelling cases for Republicans to vote for Joe Biden, to refuse to support Donald Trump because of the destruction he is doing to the very constitution, the very fundamentals of American democracy. So of course, we will move into action immediately if that happens, but I guess my point is we're, you know, we're just 36 hours before the election or less than that depending on where you are in the country and um, we just have to make sure that at this moment everybody does everything they can to get their ballots in and to fight for our democracy. It doesn't survive on its own. It only survives with each of us doing our part. You are as plugged into the progressive world as anyone. Which regions of the country or which states or areas are you most concerned about progressive turnout? Where does it need to be strong for Biden to win? Well, it has to be strong in every one of our swing states. Um, this is the point that I constantly make. Let's just take the state of Michigan in 2016. Um, the state of Michigan in 2016, Democrats lost by just over 10,000 votes. That was 20,000 fewer voters that turned out in Michigan in 2016 than in 2012. And there were 100,000 voters who went to the polls and filled in every line on the ballot except for president of the United States. We cannot have that happen again in Michigan, in uh, Wisconsin looks pretty good, but obviously we have to still, you know, keep the pedal to the metal there. Ohio critically important and Pennsylvania critically important, but also look at um, turnout in Texas, phenomenal turnout in Texas. It is possible that we turn Texas blue and there are several congressional districts there that will be in large part thanks to changing demographics in Texas and real turnout from progressives. I am worried about Florida. It is always close and it is close again this year. Um, and we've got to make sure that progressives in Florida are turning out. But then there are a few key districts um, that are also essential. Nebraska with Kara Eastman, um, who's running in that congressional seat, which will be important, by the way, to any challenge to the election as well. Um, I'm looking at that seat. I'm obviously looking at New York, uh, Dana Balter, that seat. Um, and so we've got a lot of really interesting races. And here in Washington state, we have a, um, a, an important race in Congressional District 10 um, with a strong progressive in that race that we're also, uh, I'm watching very closely, obviously it's my home state. Let's go back to a Biden Washington. What happens if uh, a president-elect Biden decides to put a Republican in the cabinet? Would you be comfortable with that? Well, it all depends on which Republican. And at the end of the day, it's about what are the goals we are trying to achieve. Um, I am not comfortable with uh, 
you know, a, a Republican who wants to move to a privatization of our education system, as an example. Um, you know, the so-called ed reformer movement has not been helpful to us um, in fighting for racial justice in education or fighting for every student to be able to have an opportunity. Um, on climate change, if there was a Republican who has been um, good on climate, and we've had those right here in our state, we had some of the best climate champions who were Republicans. So it, I, I don't like the to just say, well, we don't want any Republican. It's all about what are we trying to deliver for people? And if we have people who are willing to say no to the big fossil fuel companies, the big corporate interests that are stopping progress and willing to you know, deliver for the people, great. But it's all about what we're trying to do and what we're trying to deliver for people. That's what's important to me. But these progressive voters, if they come out and Biden wins, they're going to want something discernible that they can point to, whether it's maybe Senator Sanders as Secretary of Labor, Senator Warren, Secretary of the Treasury, maybe yourself being in the cabinet. What would you like to see in the cabinet in terms of a progressive leader being installed? Well, I would love to see those two names in the Biden cabinet. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders would put progressives on fire across the country and really give credit to a progressive movement that has been at the forefront of fighting for the changes we need, whether on gun reform, climate, healthcare, immigration. So I would love to see uh, Elizabeth Warren as Treasury Secretary, Bernie Sanders as Labor Secretary. That is very important for Biden to understand that progressives and young people and folks of color have been um, under assault for four years by this administration, longer in terms of inequities in our country that have literally put people um, at their wits end. And I think that Biden will have to recognize that it's very important for him to have strong progressives in the cabinet and to make sure that they're not only in the cabinet, but at critical places across the, um, across the administration. There are a lot of positions that have to be filled and those folks have a lot of influence, even if they're not at the cabinet level. So we're looking for progressives in the cabinet. We're looking for progressives um, all the way through the administration. And uh, let's win first, Bob. But obviously, that is that is very, very important to signal to the progressive movement that um, Joe Biden is committed to what he said in the campaign and that he will deliver justice and equality and opportunity for working families, for the most vulnerable, for folks of color across the country. What about Speaker Pelosi? Will you support her for another term? Well, it obviously it depends on who's running, but um, if well, Speaker she, she's Pelosi she's almost certainly the, running. Well, it's a question of whether anyone else is running against her. But Speaker Pelosi is. Uh, I will support the most progressive candidate, and uh, that I, I can't see a challenge to Speaker Pelosi right now. But maybe there's someone that's planning to run that I don't know. Um, but again, you know, let's get through the election, and then let's make sure that we are do, putting in place all the pieces that we will need to really deliver relief and opportunity to Americans across the country. Are you going to run for leadership? I'm running for chair of the Progressive Caucus. That's that's what I'm doing right now. And um, I ho am hopeful that um, we can bring in an even more progressive house across the country. The Progressive Caucus this year um, and our PAC has really 
um, become bigger and stronger, but we've got more to do. And I'm, I'm very committed to making sure we build the infrastructure on the inside that we need for progressive policies to win. What's your advice to progressives nationwide in the wake of this election, regardless of what happens on Tuesday night, if there's still counting to be done in certain states, if there's unhappiness with President Trump's handling of election night, what's your advice broadly to progressives about how to handle this fragile moment in American democracy? Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't agonize, organize. Whatever the situation is, we will be ready to take it on. And, you know, we are immediately going to go through and call all of our volunteers that volunteered on the campaign, thousands of people, and say to them, what are the key issues that you're most interested in? And then we will have um, our own database of when we can call on people to fight for particular issues that they're passionate about. I think this is the lesson of democracy. It's not a once in two years effort. It's not a once in four years effort. I know people are tired um, from four years of cruelty and exhausting rhetoric and targeting and hatred um, and constitution destroying efforts. But what I would say to people is, you know, electing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is the first step, but we have a lot of work to do once that happens. And a Biden-Harris administration will need our help. The people across this country, you know, the, the um, 87 million who were uninsured or underinsured even before COVID hit, combined with another 12 million that are still uninsured because they lost their jobs, um, those people need us to continue to fight for them. The, the people across this country and frankly across the world who are dealing with the effects of climate change. I live here in the West. We had record fires that have destroyed homes and destroyed dreams and destroyed forests. We have to deal with the urgent situation of climate change with a climate justice proposal. There are so many things for us to do. And I want people to know that your work is your power. Your vote is your power. Your organizing is your power. And there is no change in the history of our country or the world that ever happens without people exercising that power every day of the year. And where will you be on election night? I'll be here in Seattle. We're going to do some um, firing up of our troops uh, and also do a little election night um, party. I think we're all on pins and needles, but I feel that this year is qualitatively different than four years ago. I feel that people are turning out and we just have to go this last mile. We have to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. We have to ditch Mitch and take back the Senate competitive in a way we never imagined because of Donald Trump dragging down Senate candidates. And we have to deliver a more progressive house to the people, for the people. That's what, um, that's what you know, I'm trying to help people just stay on the bandwagon here and let's get this last piece done. And in cities like Seattle, I know here in Washington, D.C., there's a lot of unease about election night. Uh, people are boarding up businesses. Are you concerned about violence? Well, I'm always concerned based on what the president says and encourages. You know, when he tells the Proud Boys to stand by, um, stand back and stand by, that is concerning. When he says there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, people trying to push the Biden-Harris bus off the freeway, that is concerning. When he allows crowds to chant, you know, fire Fauci, fire Fauci. 
um, who is the nation's truth teller on COVID-19. Um, that is deeply concerning. He is fomenting violence. So yes, I am concerned. I am telling everybody here um, in Seattle, anyone who will listen to me, that our path is through nonviolent um, action. We cannot give in to the forces of violence. Um, and I think that the reality is there are a lot of people who, if the president steps in and tries to declare himself the winner or tries to steal the election, then we are in the throes of taking on a dictator, not a democratically elected president. And at that point, um, all bets are are off. And so we just need. For what the, do you mean by that? All bets are around. off. It means you can't control the anger that people will have if they see a, a democracy being thwarted by the president of the United States. So we are telling everybody, stay calm. The election will likely not be decided on election night. Do not listen to the president of the United States. Republicans need to speak out loudly and clearly to say the same thing and stop fomenting violence, stop protecting this president who has done nothing but add to the divisiveness and um, encourage violent white supremacy, violent action across the country. Congresswoman Jaya Paul, really appreciate your time this afternoon on the eve of the election. Uh, the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus from Washington State will be keeping an eye on all of your activities in the lame duck. And next year, regardless of who's in the White House, hope you come by again. Thank you very much. Would love to. Thanks so much, Bob. Thank you. And now we'll welcome, well, actually, we'll welcome National Republican Senatorial Committee Chairman Senator Todd Young of Indiana in just a few minutes. But I want to check in with two of my colleagues, Dave Weigel, who authors the trailer, longtime writer on national politics, and Emily Guskin, our polling analyst at the Washington Post. Emily, Dave, great to have you here. Good to be here. How many, how many cups of coffee have you guys had today? How are you doing? I started with a chai it. tea this morning, actually. No, no caffeine chai yet. Today. Well, that's low caffeine. <laughs> I'm looking what at my you, cup. Uh, I had two, and then I've, I've drank a third of a third one. And Dave, where are you? Because I, I feel like you live on the road. I'm back in Washington. I was in Minnesota until uh, yesterday, late afternoon, and I got back here late, late yesterday evening. Just uh, not out of any concern. We have you know people around the country who are talking to voters at the polls and watching for anything that could happen. I just was uh, going back to help help write a couple of bigger pieces as we get ready for tomorrow. Let's start there, Emily. Minnesota, it's gotten a little bit more attention in recent days. What's your read on Minnesota and the upper Midwest? We're seeing our our poll average, which is I'll put a put a little uh, uh, ad in for our website. It's on the elections homepage right now. And we've got an average of a bunch of the different states that people are looking at right now, um, the, the key battleground states, as we've been calling them. And it looks the Minnesota average is a little, uh, it may not actually be on there, but the last polls, we haven't seen polls in Minnesota in a really long time. Um, I think the last poll that meets post standards was there in late September. So nothing, nothing new has come out there. So that remains to be seen. But if we look at some other states around there, that could give us maybe a good idea of what's going on in the Midwest. Um, so Michigan, Wisconsin, everything around there. What are you seeing, Emily, in uh, Michigan in particular? Michigan right now, our poll average has 
Biden looking pretty good. Um, it's plus nine for him in our average. There's been a few polls that came out recently. A CNN poll came out with actually a 12-point um, lead for Biden over Trump. That's a state that will tell us a lot about what's going to happen. And if those counts come in early, um, it might bode, bode well for, for Biden. Dave, what are you paying attention to on Monday, the day before? Well, uh, it, when it comes to the Midwest, somewhat Emily was just saying, I got to see a little bit of uh, on the ground. So I'm, I'm looking for what campaigns think more than what public polling says. As she was saying, there's just some races where good public polling has not been done. In Minnesota, for example, uh, Democrats are very confident of, of, one, the turnout operation. They think they've, they've gotten basically the whole universe of people who need to return ballots. They're pretty happy that they have under, under control. Uh, and their internal polling shows the state is is fine. And I, I guess <laughs> I almost want a, a, a real life, you know, shortcut key to say in case the polls are wildly wrong. So everything I say, assume it's true unless the in case the polls are wildly wrong. <laughs> but in Minnesota, uh, you, you saw it in terms of their turnout uh, increasing over margins from last time. I was with uh, Representative Ilhan Omar in Minneapolis where they're breaking they're breaking those records. And I saw some of the canvassing myself and people who were not that happy to vote. Uh, Four years ago, just personally, in a in a day of falling around Omar, I met two people who didn't vote in 2016 who will vote this time uh, for Joe Biden. Now, there's some of that in the Republican side, and totally you meet, meet the same thing. But the math the math in that state, uh, not to focus too much on Minnesota, but the the math in that state is is the gains that Trump could make in uh, Greater Minnesota in the Iron Range are less than what Republicans have been losing in the suburbs of Minneapolis and and St. Paul. So I'm kind of looking for the same. Uh, people to, 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 to game this out everywhere. And I'm watching some of the last minute uh, legal motions. Now, uh, there, there are two waves of this. There's what's happening before the election, like this lawsuit in Harris County, te uh, Texas today. There's what's going to come after the election. Uh, and a lot of this, a lot of efforts, if, they do, if, if the basis is not a state Supreme Court ruling one way or the legislature being definitive, uh, the judges, even conservative judges, have been defaulting to what were the rules that helped voters at, at a particular time? Minnesota being an exception, Wisconsin being an, being an ex exception in terms of votes that might come in late. But I'm still watching that, and it's not exciting to watch on the ground. It's not as, as fun as a rally, I guess. But, but it's important to watch what's happening in these courtrooms and what is being filed, and even just what um, people from more of the Trump campaign than the Biden campaign, what they're, what they're emphasizing. And there's just a lot of blowing up things that are, uh, in, in, in many cases, fake. You have uh, Richard Grinnell, the former DNI, uh, who, again, was put, who's made DNI for a short period of time uh, because he was seen as so bad that Democrats would confirm a different nominee, or sorry, Republicans would confirm uh, the current nominee, um, sharing a fake video, uh, or, or a, a photo of Joe Biden from 2019 to make it look like he wasn't wearing a mask on a plane. Uh, you have the Trump campaign tweeting out how uh, Biden will get rid of the Washington Monument. And, and I'm kind of watching for them to blow up video, anything that looks bad. I mean, the, 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 this is not the first election where people will look for video uh, outside of a polling place and say that this proves there's fraud happening. I'm looking for a lot of that. Uh, a lot of debunking is going to be necessary, I think. Uh, Emily, Dave brought up a point about Minnesota where he, he said even if President Trump does better in the rural and exurban parts of the state and the Iron Range, he's, his support is eroded in the suburbs. When you look at Pennsylvania, in other battleground states, are you seeing that same pattern that even if the Trump base is strong in the rural areas and other areas, the suburbs are eroding for the Republicans? 
Suburbs are really important in all of our elections, and a lot of Americans live in the suburbs. And they're not a monolith, of course. I think when we hear Trump say things like he wants to get at suburban suburban women's votes, I think he sees that group as, as more homogenous than perhaps they are. There's diversity in our suburbs. There are more people of color who live in America's suburbs now than ever before. There are people of different um, income levels and backgrounds, and our suburbs don't look like they did in the past. So they're not gonna vote necessarily like they did in the past. Um, and the big issue that we keep seeing in this election, and something we haven't brought up yet, is the coronavirus. The coronavirus is all encompassing right now for many voters, and that's making helping them make decisions on who to vote for, it seems, or the other way they they feel strongly about different things like majorities of voters in pennsylvania and florida which are two states we just did election polling in over the weekend um say they're very or somewhat worried about someone in their immediate family catching the coronavirus and those people back biden by a larger degree the people who say that they're less worried about the coronavirus more strongly back the president emily just to follow up on that when you look at a place like Texas and the Dallas suburbs or Georgia and the Atlanta suburbs, is, is it maybe all about the coronavirus, why those states are suddenly in play? It's maybe not some kind of seismic ideological shift, but it's the virus, plain and simple. Perhaps we'll see. We ask questions in most of our polls about the importance of the coronavirus and also the economy and how people think of those things. Traditionally, the economy is a big decider in how people vote. But this year we're seeing the coronavirus have a more of an impact in, in pre-election polls on what people think and how they're feeling about things going on. The economy, of course, is not doing so great by, measure, by many measures. Um, and a lot of that is also tied to the coronavirus. One of the questions we asked in this poll was about if people wanted to move forward um, with restarting the economy at the expense of hampering efforts to control the spread of the virus, or if they thought it was more important to stop the virus, even if that hurt the economy. And majorities in both Pennsylvania and Florida, well, I'm sorry, 50% in Florida and 53% in Pennsylvania said it was more important to stop the virus, even if that hurt the economy, compared to smaller percentages who said that it was more important to restart the economy. Dave, you heard from Congresswoman Jayapal, who was talking up progressives' support for Vice President Biden. But as a reporter, what do you see on that front? Are progressives going to come out? Is that Bernie voter who may have sat on, sat on their hands in 2016, is that voter going to come out in 2020 for Biden? Uh, the progressive Bernie voters generally, yes. I mean, there, there's a sense, and, and Sanders has done a, a, a pretty yeoman work in, in keeping this together. The, the argument has been, you might not be happy with Joe Biden, but this is the only way that we're pushing from the inside instead of outside protesting for years. And uh, the, the the number of activists you see urging a third party vote, I mean, it's so small that there's a group called a uh, Movement for a People's Party that was founded to get Bernie to run as a third party candidate to get Sanders Sanders to do that. Uh, and its mission this election is to wait till after the election to start a third party, to vote, you know, not urging people to vote one way or another, but as a symbol of just how little interest there is in casting a protest vote this time. Now, would people stay home? Uh, they could, but the Trump campaign has done a very bad job, I think, of of finding the issues that motivate people who voted for Sanders and turning them away. Uh, the president sounds kind of confusing and confused when he claims that Sanders should have won the primary for, for the reason that somebody dropped out at the wrong time and 
the DNC is unfair. It just doesn't have the oomph it did last time. And he also has done a, um, a pretty bad job emphasizing trade and jobs, uh, apart from stuff that's just kind of debunkable. I mean, he'll go to Michigan and instead of something coherent about China and, uh, and NAFTA and the record of neoliberals in trade, for example, something that would have motivated the left-wing Bernie voter. He talks about how there were no car plant, uh, plants in Michigan when he took over. So he, he goes so far over, over, the, over the edge that it kind of reminds progressives why they want to at least be in a political context where they're not just protesting all the time. And look, this election comes a couple of weeks after the Supreme Court fight where a very stark reminder that if you don't have any power whatsoever, uh, unless you're willing to overthrow the government, you just get rolled on everything. So I have not, I've not seen that as a problem this time. And you'll see, I think, a, a pretty, if not not historically low level of votes for the Green Party, for example. But I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if it's back down to what the party got in 2004, 2008. You know, just a, a few hundred thousand protest, protest votes. Final question for both of you. I'd love to hear your perspective on this, the same question. Emily, to you first. We're going to be joined by Senator Todd Young of Indiana, the NRSC chairman in just a couple minutes. When you look at the Senate map and you evaluate Senate battleground polls, what deserves more attention? What's not getting enough attention in the Senate races out there? I didn't hear you for a second, but I think your question was, what's not getting enough attention in Senate races? That's right. All right, sounds good. Um, I think I've been looking at uh, Georgia a lot because there's two races happening there, and I think they're both fascinating. Uh, there's the special election, which has a bunch of people running in it, and and the um, a, a standard one. And it's not that common that we see two elections happening, and one will almost likely go to a runoff later. Um, and I'm excited to see what happens there. Georgia's a state that traditionally has not been considered a swing state, and it's a state that a lot of us are looking at this time um, as a key battleground state, which sets it apart. Um, it's a state I was born in, so I have I have some affinity for looking at Georgia, and I think it's an interesting place. I, my family members there are, are excited to vote. I, most of them voted already, um, and it, I think, shows perhaps what the Democratic Party could do in the future and what is happening in those conversations, especially what we talked about before in the suburbs and how those are evolving and changing across America. Dave Weigel. Yeah, well, first, we're not going to know the results in some Senate races for days. I mean, I think even if there is a fairly clear result in Alaska and uh, in Montana, Montana takes a while, has more mail ballots to count than usual. Alaska announced it's not going to count, start counting everything until uh, the 10th of the month, a week after election day. So uh, there, there's going to be, the people have focused on the presidential election for, for good reason, uh, but unless Democrats uh, win something decisively that's that's close uh, to, to tomorrow, like a, uh, like Iowa, uh, like one of the Georgia seats, probably the, if they win one, it'd be the, the Ossoff race, uh, the, the, there will still be uh, some a lack of clarity about how the Senate is going to go, whether a race is going to tilt one way or another. Even in Maine, where Susan Collins has been trailing in the polls, because they have ranked choice voting that, that adds up the votes for people's second choice if no one hits 50%, I mean, you could have a situation, let's say the polls were dead on accurate. You could have a situation where the Democrats clearly up by a few points uh, tomorrow, and then because the Green Party candidate was urging her voters to rank the Democrats second, probably going to win, but there's no way the race is going to be called. So I'm, I'm looking more for uncertainty, but I think I'd look to Iowa for... Uh, Iowa and then to a lesser extent, um, uh, Arizona for, for evidence of whether Democrats were doing better or worse than their final polls. I and mean, if they do even a little bit better than, than they're polling right now, they're going to easily win. They're going to easily win Arizona, narrowly win Iowa. 
if uh, Trump turned out people who are not been monitoring the polls, uh, you're going to see that in those Senate races. Emily Guskin, Dave Weigel, two first-rate reporters at the Washington Post, polling analysts. Really appreciate your time on this busy day. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. And now let's bring in one of the architects of the Republican Party's efforts to keep the Senate majority, Senator Todd Young of Indiana. He is the senior senator, the chairman of the NRSC, as I said. And that is a, a, a critical job right now as the majority hangs in the balance. Senator Young, welcome. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Senator, you heard the president last night responding to those chants about fire, Dr. Fauci. He's holding these big rallies. Is that the message for Senate Republicans as well in the closing days? Well, look, the president's success is very much tied to Republican success more generally. And our candidates have gone out there. Uh, they've made their own cases that the Republican Party remains the party to return America to the heights of prosperity that we were enjoying right before the pandemic hit. That will continue to be the message that we carry through Election Day. Uh, and, uh, you know, but for the discipline of our candidates and, and uh, but for their ability to go ahead and remind voters all that we've accomplished over the last number of years working with the White House, uh, we wouldn't be in the position where we are right now, which is a clear path to keeping the Republican Senate majority amidst a global pandemic and a serious economic downturn triggered by that pandemic. You said uh, the word, use the word discipline. Who's the model Republican Senate candidate uh, in terms of discipline right now? Yeah, I think uh, no one bests uh, uh, Susan Collins in the state of Maine. She's arguably run the best Senate uh, candidate in the country. And uh, you'll hear that from a number of uh, people who are following this uh, closely. That's a race that, uh, you know, historically, uh, one would expect Democrats to, to mop up in. It's, it's New England, and there aren't very many national New England Republicans left. In fact, at the federal level, Susan Collins is the only one, but she consistently it keeps winning because everyone knows that no one has a, a stronger, more articulate, and more effective voice for Mainers as it relates to their specific issues of concern than Susan Collins. She could run for mayor of any particular town or city across the state of Maine and probably win. Uh, she is the architect of the Paycheck Protection Program. She's been incredibly responsive to the needs of people. And she's speaking to that in a very disciplined fashion as she has from day one of this campaign. In contrast, uh, she's running against Sarah Gideon, uh, who happens to be speaker of the state legislature, who's been very unresponsive during the midst of this pandemic, not particularly visible. And uh, the contrast in that campaign couldn't be clearer. So Susan Collins, again, amidst all these headwinds, has put herself in a position to succeed on Election Day because of her discipline. I'm not sure if you heard it, but Dave Weigel from The Post was just on here, Senator. He mentioned Alaska. Are you nervous about Alaska? Look, I'm a United States Marine. Colonel Dan Sullivan is also a United States Marine. I don't get nervous about fellow Marines. Uh, Dan Sullivan is kicking down doors where they're not open. He's taken nothing from for granted from day one of this election cycle so that when this global pandemic did interrupt the longest period of economic expansion in American history, which was cultivated and sustained through Republican policies, he was ready. Uh, 
Of course, he's running against uh, a candidate who is nominally independent, but really liberal, a supporter of Bernie Sanders and, and, and Hillary Clinton in the past, and who was recruited for that position by Chuck Schumer. Um, so um, we've seen Dan Sullivan be a really good fit for the state. Uh, he, he's uh, talking about the national security issues and the in-state issues that he's actively worked on. Dan Sullivan will win that race in the end, but you know, it, it, it stands to reason that when one is outspent, it's going to tighten the margins of a race uh, like uh, that in Alaska in the midst of this atmosphere, uh, which is, again, a function of uh, the pandemic and associated downturn. Four years ago, President Trump, he's somewhat superstitious, uh, ended his campaign in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I believe he's going to be there tonight to end this campaign at a rally. You have a chance of picking up a Senate seat in Michigan, John James running against Senator Peters up in Michigan. But Senator Young, if you had five minutes with President Trump or one minute with President Trump before the rally tonight, what's your advice to him on what to say at that rally to help Senate Republicans? What do you believe this final 24-hour message needs to be? Well, I think the president will emphasize when he stands behind that podium all that he has accomplished. I think his his slogan of promises made, promises kept is an apt slogan for the last four years. He promised to uh, liberate the American people from the strictures of a decades old tax code that was weighing down entrepreneurship, job creation and wealth creation in this country. He did so working with Republicans in the House and the Senate. We were able uh, to uh, create an atmosphere that led to more businesses being created. And frankly, uh, that uh, we saw uh, household incomes increase across major uh, demographic groups, across geographies, across socioeconomic categories. Uh, we did the same thing on the regulatory front. So he needs to remind the American people about that. Cast a bit of a vision for the future about how we're going to continue to sustain this uh, recovery and uh, supercharge our economy as we emerge from the pandemic. So. Uh, maybe touch on, on uh, infrastructure and, and workforce development. Remind the American people where this virus came from and how we've responded to that country. Of course, it came from China originally, and China has been stealing our intellectual property, essentially stealing our jobs and robbing us of our national wealth for a number of years. So the president should, uh, of course, discuss all of those things. And then lastly, he should touch on one of the things that motivates and unifies Republicans more than anything else, the Supreme Court picks. Three Supreme Court picks uh, over the course of this presidency. This will make uh, very stark why it's important not only to have Republican control of the presidency, but also Republican control of the United States Senate. This is something that we've been arguing uh, at the NRSC from day one, uh, perhaps the most important uh, consequential and enduring achievement of this Republican-controlled Senate has been the confirmation of faithful constitutionalists to the bench. Most recently, Indiana's own Amy Coney Barrett. What has that uh, meant, Senator, to the Senate races, the, the confirmation of Justice Barrett? What has that meant to the, the map? So this has really motivated uh, not only our base, though it certainly has done that, as I referenced earlier, it, it's helped to get out the vote in an election uh, where, frankly, the left and the right is pretty dug in. At this point, there aren't many persuadables left, though there's a very small universe of, of, of those. So uh, it will help to motivate our base. Uh, but 
it will also, I would argue, on the margins, help us persuade some of the people who are in the suburbs uh, that uh, the president has nominated somebody of the caliber and character and biography of Amy Coney Barrett. We just had you know, several weeks of national television coverage, pretty much wall to wall, focused on this outstanding woman. And uh, this is the sort of person uh, that, that the president will continue to put on the court if there are any additional vacancies during his term, but only if paired with a Republican majority in the U.S. Senate. So in, in a state like Iowa, for example, this is something that uh, we are seeing Joni Ernst tout as she seeks her first reelection in that race. And it begs the question for our Democratic challengers in red states, uh, what sort of Supreme Court nominee would they support if not someone like Amy Coney Barrett? It also leads to the very uncomfortable question for many of our uh, Democratic challengers, which is, do you support packing of the Supreme Court of the United States? That is, do you support major structural changes that will probably be irreversible if implemented? Some changes that Joe Biden has not ruled out to add new seats to the Supreme Court of the United States, essentially turning into a super legislature to advance a far left radical progressive agenda. And the Democrats have been unable to answer it. It has led to some momentum in some of these key races like Montana, like Iowa, like Kansas, South Carolina, where Lindsey Graham, of course, chaired those hearings and the two seats in Georgia. So. Um, I think that that could really be a closer for us in many of these key races. Has the president dragged down some Senate candidates, for example, in Arizona, Senator McSally? So we want the president to succeed because the president's success is our success. We regard this uh, as, as a team effort. And um, that's why so many like Senator McSally and others around the country have decided to campaign alongside the president. What did you make of that moment where he brought her on stage for about a minute? I didn't make uh, much of it. I, I, I thought she did a great job of concisely delivering her message of uh, firing up the people in attendance. I think it was only after the fact when uh, the commentariat decided to dissect the moment that it became uh, something in, in, in the media sphere. But my neighbors weren't talking about it. Instead, my neighbors were talking about opening up the economy again and returning to some sense of normalcy, which is really what the president's focus is. It's, it's certainly uh, what Republicans in the Senate's focus is. Meanwhile, so many of my Democratic colleagues in the Senate and certainly Joe Biden are focused on shutting things down. Shut it down. Uh, mask up and shut it down. and. And, um, you know, if there's collateral damage along the way, so be it. And, and well, I don't hear Vice President Biden calling for a shutdown. You know, it's not clear to me what uh, Vice President Biden's plan is. Uh, he, he, he certainly has been critical of the president, uh, laying at the president's feet the deaths of, of countless Americans, but he doesn't seem to have a plan. I saw a television commercial, it was a 30 second spot that talked about. Uh, some cosmetic changes that Vice President uh, Biden would make. Uh, but to my knowledge, he's, he doesn't have a plan. Or if he does have a plan, he, he doesn't seem to be aware of it because he hasn't vocalized that to the American people.
What's your plan, Senator, for runoffs in Georgia? What does that look like for the NRSC? Well, look, we're going to keep the engines fired up. We'll continue to um, pull in resources to make sure that our candidates can put ads on the air to make sure that we get out the vote. Uh, but, um, you know, we will continue uh, to uh, do what we've been doing, breaking fundraising records at the Senatorial Committee, working with the individual candidates and campaigns to not only ensure that voters are educated about the great qualifications of, in this instance, uh, Senator Kelly Leffler, who is likely to go to a runoff in January, and maybe Senator David Perdue. But in, in this job interview, unlike most job interviews, it's also our duty to communicate to the American people and to Georgians more specifically, the deficiencies in qualifications of our opponents. So, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, we've got uh, a, a Reverend Warnock who, who is running for the Democratic nomination. He seems like he's probably slotted for the uh, number two position or top two position. So he, it will probably be him against Senator Leffler uh, should that race go to a runoff. Uh, this is somebody who ha has embraced Raphael, uh, has, has embraced Jeremiah Wright, who even in Barack Obama distanced himself from a number of years ago. This is an anti-American preacher that Barack Obama had to distance himself with the so-called so sister soldier moment. Uh, this is somebody who's been hypercritical, uh, frankly, ugly vis-a-vis -vis law, law enforcement. We're going to be educating Georgians about that at a time when um, you know, all Americans value and need their law enforcement, especially people from lower socioeconomic strata. So we'll be educating voters about that. When it comes to educating voters uh, uh, about David Perdue's opponent, uh, John Ossoff, John Ossoff, of course, a, a failed congressional candidate. Other than that, uh, he seems to be brought up in some pretty comfortable circumstances and, and doesn't have a lot of professional achievements to call his own. Uh, he has inflated his his resume a bit. He had some business dealings with uh, a, a company that uh, uh, operated um, with ties to the Communist Party in China, and um, that's not likely to be particular popular. Nor is educating the people of Georgia that uh, he's received a bulk of his fundraising from uh, places outside of Georgia, like San Francisco, and much more liberal, frankly, than the state of Georgia more generally. So. These are the sorts of, of approaches we'll be taking. It'll be a stark contrast, and uh, we will be winning those seats in Georgia. Uh, Senator, just your comments about Reverend Warnock. He said in a statement that he deplores anyone who disagrees. He deplores any kind of anti-Semitism or discrimination. Um, what do you? Why do you, do you believe he's uh, supportive of Jeremiah Wright? I mean, he defended Jeremiah Wright in the wake of the 2008 campaign, do you believe that's a central issue for voters, his, his association with Jeremiah Wright? Even because he defended Jeremiah Wright in the midst of that whole controversy. I mean, it is the case. You just said it. He did defend Jeremiah Wright. He's also said he's against any kind of discrimination or anti-Semitism. Um, it's, it's just interesting. That's... Hmm? Well, I mean, he's for somebody, evidently, who who engages in discrimination, uh, who, 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 who badmouths America, but, he, but he's against what that person represented. That, that seems odd to me, and maybe it's something that Reverend Warnock 
can explain over the course of uh, the runoff. Right. He had well, he has issued a statement and explained it in that sense. Uh, final thoughts. What's the one race you're you're watching? I think there's more to be. I, I think there's more, more to, be to be explained. I'm well, sorry what, to what's, interrupt. What's more to be explained? What's more to be explained? Well, I mean, this day and age, and my experience working with members of the media is you don't just issue a press release and, and then have it all be done. I mean, he, in greater depth, needs to explain why he felt inspired to be supportive of Jeremiah, Jeremiah Wright. I, I'd like a more fulsome explanation. Maybe the people of Georgia would. That's something we'll explore. Uh, just final thought here, Senator Young, you're chairman of the NRSC. What's the one race at the top of your radar on Tuesday night? It's tough to nail it down to just one when we're defending 23 races. But um, I have to say, North Carolina, Tom Tillis uh, has been closing for a number of weeks, and he's been closing very, very strong. Uh, he, he's facing a candidate in Cal Cunningham who's running on his biography. He's been very short on substance. Uh, I've been really proud of Tom Tillis and, and how he's performed in debates and, and the quality of campaign he's put together. This is a state that tends to break late, as we saw uh, just a couple of years ago in, in Richard Burr's Senate race there in North Carolina. Uh, unfortunately for Cal Cunningham, uh, if you run on your biography, you run on honor, duty, country, as, as this member of the military has, and you're being investigated by the United States Army for extramarital affairs with a combat veteran's wife, um, that's what we call a bad fact in the legal profession. So um, the contrast between, on one hand, uh, Tom Tillis, who grew up in very hum humble circumstances and, and has really uh, found a path towards success, a very inspiring background during uh, a difficult time for our country. And on the other hand, someone who is frankly a, uh, an exposed pretender um, I, I think that uh, I think that that race is is going to end up uh, uh, being one that's uh, a victory for Republicans and key to maintaining the majority. Senator Todd Young of Indiana, chairman of the NRSC, appreciate you coming by for a conversation on the eve of the election. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit score grows, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Bill Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC, out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.